Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion, in Matthew's Gospel. We've been exploring chapter 10 in Matthew, where Jesus sends out his disciples as organizers to set up a network of houses and communities in the towns and villages of Israel through which the new society can be built. They are to proclaim the message of the new society, or kingdom of heaven, and enact signs of its coming through healing and casting out demons, which are the minions of empire. This organizing mission is a sort of reconquest of Israel. Jesus is a second, but nonviolent, Joshua, capturing the towns and villages before marching on Jerusalem. So he warns his disciple organizers that they will encounter resistance and must be prepared to suffer physically, even to the point of death. He tells them that their mission will rip apart the very fabric of their society. But he also tells them that their suffering will not be in vain, that their witness and martyrdom will break the power of the ruling class and reveal the possibility of a new social order. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 25 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Now, before we proceed, I want to suggest that one reason that it may be difficult for us to understand the gospel story is because translators have largely used religious words to translate the text. And as I've been arguing throughout this series, the biblical texts in their original contexts were not religious in any sense that made them stand apart, because in the ancient world, what we call religion was just the way everyone viewed all of life. So modern translations, which tend to use modern religious language to translate the biblical texts, are, I think, misleading and make it difficult to discern what is really going on. For example, when someone comes and kneels before Jesus, that can sound religious to us. Like the person is recognizing the divinity of Jesus, But in an ancient honor-shame society, one did not have to recognize divine status in another to kneel before them. The act of kneeling was an act of respect, especially if one were about to ask a favor, which is what those who kneel before Jesus are doing. But many translations use the word worship to describe this act of kneeling, leading us to believe that the person is worshiping Jesus as God which is probably not the case, even if the text wants us to understand that he is divine, that's probably not what the character is doing at the time when they kneel before Jesus. To be fair to the translators, though, it is difficult to translate these texts without using words that sound religious to us 
because much of what is occurring in the story can come across as religious because it comes from a pre-scientific culture in which belief in gods and spirits was much more pervasive than it is today. And that brings me to another reason that the story of Jesus and Matthew can be difficult to understand. Cultural distance. The cultural distance between first century Middle Eastern culture and modern Western culture makes the text very difficult to translate. The passage that we are currently exploring uses a lot of language that sounds extreme or even unhealthy to us. That is because it comes to us from a culture that not only makes extensive use of hyperbole, but also views relationships through the lens of honor and shame rather than individual guilt and innocence. So some of the language in this chapter might be shocking to us, but in its original setting, it was normal. In the last episode, I mentioned that Jesus is building a new household. You see, tribes and nations and empires were referred to as houses or households. So Israel has been referred to earlier in this chapter as the house of Israel, and Rome was sometimes called the house of Rome. In Matthew, Jesus is building a new house to replace the existing national and tribal houses. It will be a house of wisdom. He will be the teacher and master of the house. He will eventually make teachers out of all of his students. In verses 24 to 25 of chapter 10 that we are now looking at, he uses this metaphor of the house to make a joke, a dark joke. He says in verses 24 to 25, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus here engages in some dark humor. He jokes that his disciples cannot be greater than him, because, of course, students cannot be greater than the teacher. So the treatment that they receive from the authorities will at best be equal, but will probably be worse than what he will get. The joke is that the authorities will maintain an honorable decorum in their persecution of the movement, distinguishing between the teacher and the students. But notice that Jesus is a teacher and the disciples are students in a new household. Jesus' movement seeks to establish a new society in the midst of the one around them, the old society that is doomed to destruction. The new house is built in the shell of the old. Then he continues with a key aspect of how they will prevail. In verses 26 and 27, he tells his disciple organizers, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. This revealing of secrets is key to the victory of the movement. Systems of domination thrive on secrets and mystification. They create myths to justify their power and control, and mystifying processes to go along with the myths and keep the people distracted. Think of modern myths such as trickle-down economics that bolster the wealthy, calling them job creators, 
For those of you living in the United States, think of the increasingly complicated and expensive processes of accessing health care in an industry that rakes in profits for the wealthy while rationing care to the poor and the middle class. Many people see through these myths and rage at the expensive and complicated processes, but many others are duped. And those who can see more clearly are also often too tired and worn out by the system to mount an effective resistance. The ancient world had similar myths and processes. The patronage system sustained the myth of the wealthy as beneficent and kind, while they robbed the common people through rent, debt, and taxation. The temple and the sacrificial systems kept people distracted and struggling to maintain proper standing in society. Jesus tells his disciple organizers that these myths will be undone, that all will be revealed. The revealing of the secrets in ancient Jewish literature signals an end to elite oppressive rule and the beginning of the rule of the just. For example, 1 Enoch 38, 3-4 reads, When too the secrets of the righteous shall be revealed, then shall sinners be judged. From that period those who possess the earth shall cease to be powerful and exalted. The fall of the powers and authorities of this world begins with the revealing of the secrets. That, incidentally, is actually the meaning of apocalyptic. It comes from the Greek apocalypto, which means to reveal. Apocalyptic imagery, which is sprinkled throughout the Gospel of Matthew, reveals the absurd mythology of the powers and authorities, much the way political cartoons do in our modern world. But more than that, apocalyptic and the message of the gospel also imagines a brand new future after the old order has been destroyed. The real secrets to be revealed are not so much the secrets of the powers and authorities. Those secrets are really already known. They are open secrets. The real and powerful secrets to be revealed are the secrets of the kingdom, the secrets of the new society, or as the first Enoch passage states, the secrets of the righteous or the just. The secrets of the righteous are truths that are dangerous from the standpoint of the powerful, such as, for example, that the common people have wisdom and faith and power to create a new society based on mutual sharing where people heal and care for each other. Those secrets will bring down the old oppressive order and give rise to a new and just society. Jesus continues in verses 28 to 30. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. While a modern Western audience might appreciate the first half of this verse, do not fear those who can kill the body but not the soul, many today might recoil at the second half, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of God language here may sound strange and unhealthy to modern ears, 
but it was normal in an ancient honor-shame society, and simply how one might speak of proper fear of doing the dishonorable thing, the fear of losing what is most precious. Even today, we poetically speak of the possibility of losing our souls if we capitulate and take the seductive and easy path of dishonesty and greed. Central to the wisdom of this gospel and a key to its strategy is the cross, the willingness of its members to be martyred for the cause. That means that for the individual, victory is found in staying true to the end. That is how you can save your soul. A modern way of saying this might be, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear rather the loss of your soul, the capitulation to a meaningless life in which you fail to stand up for yourself and your brothers and sisters, a life captive to the powers and authorities of this world who demean and degrade you. Jesus continues in verses 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. In isolation, these verses might be taken to mean that no harm will come to Jesus' disciples. But in the context of this speech, we know that Jesus has already told them that they will be severely persecuted perhaps treated worse than himself, and he is about to talk to them about martyrdom. So the Father's care here does not mean that they will not suffer persecution or death, but that it will not be meaningless. Jesus continues in verse 32 with a statement that will not sit well in our modern ears. He states, Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Here again is language that does not translate well into our culture. This is honor-shame language, very much at home in an honor-shame culture. The Gospel of Matthew has depicted Jesus as embodying his people. So to publicly deny him, is to publicly deny the movement. In an ancient honor-shame culture, public denial of relationship was much more severe than it would be for us today. Even today it would be dicey, but we might understand someone doing it who is undergoing torture. In fact, modern U.S. soldiers are sometimes told to repeat on camera whatever their captors tell them to say because the U.S. public will know that it was coerced, and such statements will simply reinforce the disgust they feel for the enemy. But in an ancient honor-shame society, such dishonor was severe and could do much damage. Disciples, the people of the movement, are advised to be secretive when prudent, but they are not given permission to deny the movement publicly. Such an act is simply not tolerable in an honor-shame culture. Jesus continues in verses 34 to 37. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, 
and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, Jesus declares that his message, his movement, will tear apart the old households, the old society. As I have said before, households were the economic, social, and political building blocks of the empire, and the empire was referred to as a household. Here, Jesus uses the imagery of family members becoming enemies and turning against each other to say that Rome's household and the households of the empire will be torn apart. And of course, this is not just imagery. It is what happens in revolutions. This will happen even in peasant families. Not all peasants will maintain solidarity. Jesus continues in verses 38 to 39. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Taking up the cross has often been understood by modern readers as a euphemism for the sacrifice involved in religious discipline and devotion. But in its ancient context, taking up the cross was a euphemism for becoming an enemy of the empire. The empire often executed its enemies by crucifying them. In fact, Matthew was written at a time not long after Rome had crucified thousands of Jewish rebels after crushing a rebellion in 70 CE. Jesus here tells his disciples, his organizers, that they must be prepared to suffer martyrdom if necessary. The only way that they will break the power of the empire and all systems of oppression is by taking up the nonviolent struggle against it, even to the point of death. It is in this willingness to be martyred, the power of the cross, that they will find life and liberty. Whoever is willing to lose life will find it. It is important to realize, however, that Jesus is making a speech he is being rhetorical and using hyperbole. After saying that only the one who endures to the end will be saved or liberated, and that only those who lose their lives will find them, that he will deny anyone who denies him, the story proceeds to tell us that the quintessential disciple, Peter, does in fact deny Jesus and fail to follow Jesus to the cross. Yet this disciple becomes a leader in the movement. Jesus does not expel him from the movement or deny him before the Father. In fact, the Gospel of John provides a very moving account of Jesus' reconciliation with Peter after the resurrection. Jesus continues in verses 40 to 42. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. The speech comes back to where it began, the theme of hospitality. Jesus began the speech by sending out his disciples as organizers 
spreading the message and healing the people, all while relying on the hospitality of the people, thereby setting up a network of households in the towns and villages which would serve as a base from which to build the new society. Here at the end of the speech, after spending most of the time giving instructions to the traveling organizers, he commends those who grant them hospitality. Both traveling organizers and those who offer hospitality for them are crucial to this movement. It is also worth noting that after calling his hearers to the ultimate sacrifice of laying down their lives for the movement, he says that even the smallest acts of hospitality to his organizers, such as giving one of them a cup of water, will surely be recognized and rewarded. After commissioning his first twelve organizers, Jesus will give homage to his forerunner, John the Baptizer. That will be the topic of the next episode. For now, my name is Bert Newton. Bob Nolte and David Martin have provided the music for this podcast series. Please spread the word about this podcast. If you rate us on Apple Podcasts or other platforms where this podcast is found, and those platforms are a legion, for they are many, that will draw more people to us. And I learned from another podcast that I was listening to, a good phrase to use here, if you like us, rate us on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. Because if you don't like us, that's not going to help. But if you like us, spread the word and rate us so that more people can be drawn to this podcast series. This has been episode 25 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.